episode of the Armchair Theologian. I'm so glad that you chose to join us. Uh, we are going to be moving into a different, a little different series, and I give you a little background for this. Uh, several years ago, I was uh, going through my regular, uh, you know, devotion time and just sort of. Uh, just moving through the New Testament, reading some of my favorite uh, books, just getting a little more, you know, deeply immersed in God's Word. And I came across uh, some of the most uh, unique um, things I had not seen before. And that is that many of the apostles that were writing in the New Testament wrote their prayers and their thoughts. And I started thinking about that. I came across the book of James and I started to look at, look at what James had to say. And I started to notice that the prayers that he had were pretty powerful. And so I uh, started a little personal devotion called the, um, the, the Prayers of James. And then it occurred to me that, well, all the, other, all the other writers or the apostles, if you will, that are in the New Testament also had similar prayers and ideas. And so I sort of just went on a chain for about, uh, I don't know, six, seven months, my own personal study, uh, looking at the prayers of the apostles and what those prayers meant. Um, and of course, that led me back to the prayers of Jesus and what he prayed for uh, in his time here on earth. And so um, that, of course, led me to some other things like, for instance, the sermons of the apostles. Um, we don't have a lot of the sermons recorded. And in some cases, the uh, original uh, the original um uh, letters that were written, the epistles were themselves a sermon. In fact, you see a lot of elements of that in the book of Hebrews because um, it's such a cohesive uh, thought process. And while we at the church, uh, when we look at like a book like Hebrews with all those chapters, we tend to try to break it down to its smallest degree and parse out every word to get a good understanding, which is nothing wrong with that. It's just the original hearers would have heard this sermon that we call the book of Hebrews in one complete sitting. Um, it's not that long. It's something that you can read in, in 20, you know, 30 minutes. And that's probably what, um, how it was presented the first time that it was, that it came out. But aside from that, there are a few examples of uh, clear, concise uh, sermons that occurred in the New Testament. And even in the Old Testament, too. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy is largely a collection of sermons that uh, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and he collected them in a single book so that he could have uh, so he could have that that uh, that body of knowledge uh, transcend his death and be able to help uh, bolster the new uh, nation as they moved into the Promised Land after he passed away. And so you can see that in in his writings as well. And so that leads us to last week's uh, sermon that we uh, that we posted online as well as we did it face to face. Um, I, the title of the sermon was "Firefall," and we were talking about the fire that fell from heaven in the form of the Holy Spirit. And uh, uh, it was pretty. It's a pretty lengthy sermon, and it's also a pretty lengthy um, uh, passage in Scripture. And it's hard to break down. Uh, 47 verses in a single, you know, 30, 45 minute, hour long speech. You just can't do it. There's just so much there. I mean, theologians have spent years uh, pulling out every possible little bit of detail from uh, that one single chapter in the book of Acts. So, you know, it's hard to be able to really focus heavily 
on that, but I noticed that in the process of preparing for last week's service sermon and, and this week's upcoming sermon, where we're going to be preaching on the gate called Beautiful, that uh, Peter has a couple of good sermons. In fact, um, several you know good messages that are that come out in the book of Hebrews, and then we have the message from Stephen, and so we thought I thought that uh, focusing in on the sermons uh, on our Wednesday night time would be a, an effective use of our time. And so I thought that would be a good good opportunity for us to just stick with the theme that we're doing on Sunday morning and at the same time give us a little more deeper clarity, um, something we can chew on. I had sort of challenged the congregation last Sunday to spend some more time in chapter 2 in the book of uh, Acts uh, this week. And so uh, this is an attempt to do that. Um, so first of all, I just want to say uh, um, I'm excited about this. And second of all, I'm just going to do a quick word of prayer and uh, we're going to get started. So bow with me if you will. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your mercy and your grace and your love. Lord, we ask that you will bless our time as we open up your word. Bless not only the reading, but the hearing. And allow us to, to take the message you have from Peter's message and apply it to our lives today. We love you. We thank you. We ask all these things in the name of your Son and our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So um, we're getting right back into it, right? And Peter is just, I tell you, he's a powerful guy. Um, he wasn't always my favorite apostle. He always seems uh, kind of brash and, and uh, straightforward. And, and, and I like to joke around that uh, during the days when he was following Jesus before he really came into his own and the Holy Spirit indwelt him and he um, took on that full mantle of apostleship um, that he often had a hand, foot, and mouth disease because he was always putting his hands and his feet and his mouth um, and, and getting ahead of himself when he would speak. Uh, one of my favorite uh, discussions that Jesus had with Peter was when uh, Jesus was telling the disciples that he was going to, he was going to, in effect, die. He was going to be crucified. Um, and Peter just took him aside like, like this older brother. And he wanted to, he wanted to sort of chastise Jesus about saying such things, right? He's like, Jesus, don't say this. You know, you can't say this stuff. We can't build a church if you keep telling people you're going to die, right? And that's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm using, I'm using, Obviously, my own, um, uh, taking a lot of license here with this, my own paraphrase. Um, and Jesus just turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. He actually calls Peter the adversary, the, the adversary of God. And um, obviously, he wasn't saying that Peter was filled with, with the Holy Spirit, with the, not only Spirit, but the, uh, the Spirit of Satan. Um, but he was trying to give Peter the idea, the understanding that he was, he was walking a line with that line of thought that was counter to the will and the word of God. And uh, he had to come down on him and uh, he just said, look, you can't do this. Right. Um, and uh, he just had to, had to put him in his place. And so oftentimes you see Peter doing stuff like that in the, in the, um, in the new Testament. But, by the time the Spirit grabs a hold of him, you know, and, and he's fully invested in the Spirit now, and the Holy Spirit is just overflowing out of him, and you can tell in his sermon um, that he gives. It's just a powerful moment. So if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Acts. We're going to look at um, his actual sermon, um, and we're going we're to pay attention to it. And this this term, per, uh, sermon has like three parts. So there's, there's your there's your opening three parts and a closed concept that we see often in in preacher schools. And the three parts are the the um, the very immediate discussion of the uh, the descent of the Holy Spirit. That's he uses a scriptural proof of Joel chapter uh, um, Joel chapter two, and 
Uh, and then the second part is, um, is, is all about Jesus, the Messiah, what made him the Messiah that was worthy of fulfilling the role of a, of a Messiah. And, uh, and then we see the final part of that is the call to repentance. Um, and most theologians believe, as we look at this, that um, this was a primitive or an early form of what we call a, a kerygma. Um, it's a uh, it's it's a it's a the primitive form of the gospel. It's like the strip all the the strip all the other stuff away and just give me the nuts and bolts, the essence of of what it is to be saved, right? And so that's sort of where where uh, Peter is at. He's not he's not fleshing this out. I mean, there's no epistles have been written, no gospels have been written. There's been no nothing, right? The only thing they have is the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, the Old Testament proofs of uh, the. The, the prophetic elements and the and the messianic messages that sort of that didn't sort of fit completely the life uh, and ministry and death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and so um, that's sort of the the essence of it and then um, and then they had the Holy Spirit dwelling within them I think I already said that and and that's basically it and of course the words of Jesus that were coming back to their their memory and Jesus did say that the Holy Spirit would come and. Uh, and reveal all truth to them. Okay, that's good. And bring back the memory of all the words that Jesus said. Now, John was pretty clear that if they wrote down everything that Jesus said and did, it would fill all the books in all the world. Um, now, he was being a little hyperbolic there, uh, but he wasn't wrong in saying that Jesus said far more and did far more than what the, the four gospels contain. And so, you know, we're stuck with a very limited perspective. Uh, most historians like to call this the window, uh, the window perspective. So if you imagine that you're in your apartment on a second story, third story um, apartment building overlooking a busy main street of your town and you hear a noise outside and you go to your window and you, you know, the window's open and there's nothing obscuring your view and you look out your window, all you're going to see is that box frame and what's inside it. And as you are standing far away from your window, you're going to see a limited perspective of just the building in front of you and maybe a little bit up and a little bit below, right? That's all you're going to see. And as you come closer and closer and closer to the window, your vision expands to a little bit greater degree. But no matter how close you get, even if you get right up next to the window and you're looking out, and maybe you can look a little down, maybe you can look to the left or the right or the up, um, but you're still only going to get just so much of the view. You're not going to get the complete picture. And so that's kind of where we're at. We only have what we have, but we have the promise that what we do have is exactly what God wants us to know so that we can transition from from where we are now into glory and spend the rest of eternity getting the panoramic view right the view of it all that thousand foot foot view of of who jesus really is and then we get to spend all of eternity trying to figure it all out right because it's going to take that long to understand and figure out an infinite being like god and so i'm looking forward to that and so that's where that's what this is so this this primitive form of the gospel this karagima that we're talking about is um is is just nuts and bolts right Every single sermon that Peter preaches, he emphasizes the, the the resurrection and the repentance concept. Um, and most of the apostles, as they're preaching, you see those elements of of resurrection, repentance, baptism, sometimes, 
And, um, and then of course that follow on, how do we live after all those events? And so this really focuses on three things. It focuses on, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, the repentance followed on by the redemption and then the baptism and the baptism sort of plays in that role. Um, and so that's kind of where we're at. Now I've heard some people say in the past that, well, you know, this was obviously Peter, a Jew, um, speaking to Jewish individuals. And so is this a message for us today? Day. And I would say that yes, it is. And the reason why is because, the reason why I say that is because um, you have a lot of examples in the Old Testament of parallel prophecies. That means a prophecy that was given to the, to the, the children of Israel for that time, right? And then a follow-on prophecy that has future and potentially messianic importance um, going forward. Um, you see that often in the Old Testament. In fact, one of my favorites is the discussion of uh, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Um, the original prophecy that was given in the Old Testament was a prophecy that was given for a specific moment in time in the life of uh, of Jerusalem as they were about to be sacked and they said that all these things are going to happen and and this would be this would be a sign that would that that it would that the end time end is coming right that 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 transition point is coming and as far as far as scripture tells us that happened um and so the virgin birth thingy concept that we're dealing with happened um but it also had a parallel prophecy for the messianic moment where Jesus came and was born of a virgin Mary. And so it's interesting how you see those parallels that happen all the time. And Jesus himself spoke quite a bit about the um about the the, the coming Gentile church, the age of the Gentiles, the um the rise of the Gentiles if you will. And that's kind of where we're at now. And it's interesting that all this occurred on the uh during the the, the solemn feast or festival of Shavuot, Shavuot, um, which is the, uh, the feast of um, Pentecost, the feast of weeks, um, if you will. It was 50 days after the feast of first fruits, which was a fulfilled feast um, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so of all the feasts, this is the only one that allows leaven to be added to the bread. In every other instance in the Old Testament, um, where they talk about leaven, leaven is always um, uh, is always a metaphor for sin, and and so that sin that uh, that sort of infects the world, and so all the other feasts they deal with unleavened bread, but this is the only one that has the leaven in it. And in fact, they focus on two loaves with leaven in them, so you got big, full, fluffy loaves of bread, and that's sort of the connection point as they draw together, and so. From for some theologians, and I, I tend to agree with this, although it's kind of hard to over spiritualize these things. Um, but most people believe that it's a representation of the church and the merging of the Gentile nation, a Gentile church with the Jewish church that's going to come together. Um, and so it's it's kind of a unique thing. Now, granted. That's it. Could be just it. Couldn't it? May not be that. It may just be simply bread. Um, but a lot of theologians look at the um, the religious uh, scenarios that are played out in the um, in these different uh, feasts and use them as uh, prophetic moments or moments that disguise or discuss the um, uh, uh, the the 
the ministry of the Messiah. So, and the, the future movement of God and his people. Now, that being said, uh, we have like three parts. And so I'm just going to read them to you right now. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll break it down a little bit more. So Peter, verse 14, chapter 2, the book of Acts. Uh, but Peter, taking his stand uh, with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be the, in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the day, the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Uh, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. And just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting him an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope, because you, are not, you will not abandon my soul to the Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to, see, to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, which to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth his uh, poured for this which you both see and hear. For what, was it not David who ascended into heaven? But he, for sorry, for it was not David who ascended into heaven. But he himself says, "The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet." Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Wow, that's a pretty powerful message that Peter is giving uh, to his to the people of Israel. And of course, they were confounded by this message. Um, they were Their conscience was, was cut to the quick. Uh, the Bible says that, that their heart was pierced 
Um, and they begged. They said, well, what do we do now? And and that's when Peter says those great words um, uh, right after that. He says, uh, Peter said to them, repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of the uh, the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, there's a lot that, that we can unpack here. And um, even in this short period of time, we're not going to be able to, to fully um, invest ourselves in it. But we can talk a little bit about it. So in the very beginning, Peter says that he stood up and he declared. Um, that word declare is he, he spoke seriously or with, with gravitas, with gravity, with weight. It was a weighty discussion. He said he declared. Um, he stood up and he declared to them. He raised his voice. Um, and we talked a little bit in the last sermon that uh, heralds for the king stood, but teachers sat. And so the idea that he was standing um, meant that he had something that, that was important to, 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 to announce. It was more of an announcement, a pronouncement, than it was um, a, a teaching moment. He's not breaking down the scriptures so much as he's uh, using the scriptural background as proof of who Jesus was and what he did and what's happening to them and what they need to do if they wish to uh, to have a, a part of that new kingdom that's coming. And so um, that's where we're at right here. Um, the spirit um, uh, the spirit was poured out on these people and this, and they were poured out on and Joel says the sons and daughters and that's where he sort of begins his message was trying to explain why, this all this this is happening all the the languages the the loud noise the everything that took place that drew that crowd together this is the reason why okay and he, he goes to the prophet Joel, which is a favorite, obviously, of um, of, of the biblical uh, writers because it talks quite a bit about the Holy Spirit. But you have to understand that the original prophecy that was given, again, it's a parallel prophecy. It was given to Joel about the nation of Israel, and it's going to, um, uh, but it also has impact in the final day of the Lord, right? And so uh, Joel was originally talking about a locust plague that had ravaged the land. He was using that as a parallel for the coming uh, destruction that was going to happen and for that great day that's going to come in the future. Um, Joel was calling the people to repentance and promising the restoration and prosperity of the land and the people um, as they moved on because he was, he was, he was looking at that moment of restoration as a great and glorious day. But he also looked beyond that moment to that great and glorious day of the Lord, the dawn of the Messianic age, when the Spirit of God will be poured out on all of Israel. And so that's kind of where uh, where Peter is, is bringing this. He says, this is what's happening. The Spirit of God is being, is being poured out on all of humanity. Now for us, that's kind of old hat. Yeah, everybody gets that Spirit, you know, comes and dwells within us. And, and 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 he's the one that, that prays for us because we don't always know what to, to pray. He's the one that convicts us. He's the one that moves in us and with us. Um, he's he's the guy, right? He's the he's the one that, that we dwell and deal with the most. Um, but that wasn't the case for the first century believer. Um, it wasn't the case before the Holy Spirit first came upon humanity because up to this point, the Holy Spirit didn't have this kind of ministry in the church or in the world. He had a different type of ministry. So things are changing. And um, and the people that were listening to this would have at least begun to understand this, right? Um, and 
So it continues on. Um, he says, everyone who calls, and this is where verse 21 comes in. If you skip down to 21, it says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Joel's words, but he's now bringing it forward to um, to the current time. And this is that early uh, gospel, that, that, that primitive gospel. P- Paul um, brings it out again in Romans and some of the other passages he writes, um, the idea that we call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And it all comes from that Old Testament concept that is uh, that has been put out. Um, and Peter's um, consensus, his conviction, if you will, is very much in keeping with the rabbinical teaching and tradition of the day and the idea that the Spirit no longer rested um, on all of Israel but would return. It's like this universal gift that would come at the end time. This is some things that have been, been being taught by the rabbis today. They didn't realize that Jesus was the one that was the initiating this, uh, but they were waiting for this event. And so Paul, all Peter did was point them to what they already knew, what they'd already been taught, um, so they would understand a little more clearly. And so we have that that understanding. And then we get to this middle part of the message. Now, many interpreters feel that these verses incorporate, again, that most primitive um, uh, gospel message that the Christian church had, that kerygma that we talked about. Um, and the idea that the death of Jesus and the resurrection was closely linked and everything was all intermingled, which, of course, we know. Um, we also know that this basic form of the uh, the the confession that um, that Paul is talking or Peter is talking about, where he says, uh, "Men of Israel, listen. Uh, Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God." Um, he's just going in and explained it, and then the end of it is God raised him from the dead. And so Peter expands on that basic um, formula of salvation, referring ble- briefly to the earthly ministry of Jesus, and then moving right into the um, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, because the resurrection was the critical part. It was the part that proved uh, that Jesus really was the Messiah. And so that sort of rolls into um, the final part of this, which we get into um, the final psalm. But understand that that the psalm that day, that that Paul was talking about in uh, verse twenty five through twenty eight is that psalm. Um, uh, what was it? Psalm sixteen eight through eleven. Um, that particular psalm. It was not to prove the resurrection of Jesus because that was something that was without question. It didn't need a proof. He was merely proving the messianic status of Jesus, who God rose from the grave. And so that was the focus of that middle part of that is that Jesus died and he was resurrected and God did the resurrecting. Okay. And then we move into the final part of this message that Paul or Peter, I keep doing that. I'm sorry, um, that Peter brings out. And that's uh, Psalm 110 verse one. Now this was a favorite passage from the first century church. They loved this passage because it meant more to the Jews than it does to us. We, we read it like, Oh yeah, I get that. We move on because for us, it's, it just doesn't have the same level of impact that it would for a Jewish um, individual who loved King David and was waiting for that messianic king to start the kingdom over again, right? Um, and so um, that's that's where it is. And we see that um, written down in verse thirty-four, where it says, "The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, or sit at my right hand, until I make your." Uh, the Lord said to my Lord, "Sit at my right hand." until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a messianic 
um, passage. This is the prophet known as David writing as the Holy Spirit commanded and telling him. That's why David is writing. It says, my Lord said to, um, the Lord said to my Lord, right? And so you get the the idea that, that David is, is peering into uh, the heavenlies and catching a glimpse of the conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And he recognized immediately that both of these figures were his Lord, his um, his deity, his his God, and um, he knew beyond a shadow of doubt. And he didn't understand it, and he wrote what he was told to write. And we've been trying to figure this out, but it's definitely a messianic prophecy. In fact, um, uh, this favorite verse in the New Testament, and for the first century church, it, it appears all over the place in in the New Testament. It's written specifically in First Corinthians fifteen and Hebrews chapter one verse thirteen and Hebrews ten thirteen, and then there's um, also uh, Mark and a couple of the other gospel writers recorded. Mark writes this down in in chapter twelve of his gospel, and then there's sort of um, the echoes of this particular verse that you can see that goes. Um, in like a strong illusion and echo, if you will, in a whole bunch of the other verses in the New Testament, like Romans 8.34, Ephesians 1.21, or 1.20 and then 22, um, Colossians 3.1, um, Hebrews 1 chapter, or verse 1, chapter 3, um, 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 12, chapter 12, verse 2, and then 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. I know those are a lot, and uh, I will put this graphic up when I do the final editing so you can have those verses face-to-face, um, -face and you can pause the video and write them down. Um, these are powerful passages that uh, Peter wanted us to have and wanted us to know that this was an important part of the primitive understanding of who Jesus was. Now, again, they're still fleshing this out. The Holy Spirit still um, sort of pouring into them the information, bringing back the words of Jesus to their memory so they can marry up what the Old Testament said, what Jesus said, and what the Holy Spirit is now um, teaching them based upon those two things. Uh, we know that the Holy Spirit only spoke um, what he was told and what he knows, and he knows the Son. He knows the Father. The Holy Spirit's main job is to glorify the Son, and so that's what he does through the, the writers of the New Testament. And so, that particular psalm was an enthronement psalm. It was a psalm that talked about um, where the king is going to sit. And it was this, it was the psalm that the Jews, the early Jews, rested upon as what the Messiah was going to be like. Now, in that passage, they don't deal with the death, burial, and resurrection of, of the Messiah. They only deal with the, the, the Messiah sitting on the throne of David. And that hasn't happened yet. And so Peter was basically saying, while this part of that hasn't happened yet, it's going to and it's going to happen soon. Um, and you get that understanding in the New Testament is that the, the day of the coming day of the Lord is going to happen soon, like soon, soon, right? Like maybe tomorrow, like maybe in 10 minutes kind of deal. And you get that intensity. It's like, it's like every day. I wonder if Peter or Paul woke up every morning and, and opened their eyes and said, hmm, I guess not this morning, you know, uh, one more day to serve God, one more day to, to share more about his love and his message and his, and his, and his ministry. Um, uh, and so they looked at it that way, but never knowing uh, when they were going to, when God was going to come back and pick them up. And so this has been uh, sort of a constant 
uh, understanding and concept that uh, Peter would have had to deal with and all the other apostles. So that's really the, the nuts and bolts of this. I realize that we're not getting fully into this, but at the end, we have to ask ourselves, so what? You know, how does this apply to us today? Well, we've got two different people that are being spoken um, to in this passage. You had the 120 believers that were filled with the Holy Spirit and needed to hear the message of the resurrection um, and the repentance concept of, of from Jesus uh, through the disciples so that they might be able to send that information out to a world that needed to hear it. And then you had people that didn't understand who the Messiah was or that Jesus was the man and, and God and everything else, and they needed to understand that. So you had you had the church and you had the lost folk. The church were given a mission. They went out of that upper room with the Holy Spirit involved with them and indwelling them, and they rushed into the crowd and became instant witnesses just like Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so they're given that task and they go right about it. That's what they're supposed to do. So if you're a believer and you believe in the message, you don't have to get complicated. It's not rocket science, okay? The message of salvation, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what Peter said, quoting from the Old Testament. And then he goes on to say, um, you have to believe in the resurrection, right? You have to um, repent of your sins and be baptized. Scripture teaches in other areas that if we are faithful to repent, he is faithful for, for, to forgive. And so you have to marry what Peter says up with the totality of Scripture. And then it talks about baptism. Now, most um, evangelical folks believe that baptism is a, is a sign of obedience as we follow the Lord, um, our Savior, and follow him in what we call believer's baptism. Now, there are some people that teach that baptism is required for salvation. Um, but I, I think that that is a... Um, that's a mischaracterization of, uh, of what baptism is because the majority of the times that baptism is, talking, is talked about is talked about in terms of, a, uh, of obedience as we follow his example. Um, this is one of the few places where it actually talks about linking baptism with the, um, uh, with the forgiveness of our sins. And, but it, you can't build a theology on one single verse. You have to look at all of them and see how they come together and understand the, the, the full impact of what is being said. And so I would just encourage you as you go forward, as you're looking at this, if you're, if you're saved and you know Jesus Christ, your Savior, you've been baptized, you're, you're moving where God wants you to move, that you take this message and say, how can I apply this to what I'm already talking to my lost friends about? How can I bring that around so that they can ask me, hey, what should we do? And you, like Peter, can say, well, you know, you have to repent. You have to be baptized. You have to move forward. Um, and um, But for those of you that are lost that might be watching this, um, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. And I would not want the sun to set on you um, on this day when you hear the sound, when you hear this, um, this message. I wouldn't want the sun to set um, without you getting your heart right. The reality is, is that we have, those of us that are saved has all eternity to, to learn more about the gospel message and who Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are and, and what they, what they do, the work that they have in the earth and, and, and the connection that we have with them. We have all eternity to figure that out. Um, but if you're not saved, you have eternity too to look at, but it's not going to be spent pondering the mysteries of the universe and diving deeper into the awesomeness of God, it's going to be an eternity um, of suffering. 
And that's what scripture talks about. And I hate to say it, you know, because I, I don't want anyone to go to hell. But hell is real. You can't have one without the other. You can't have heaven without hell. One defines the other. The greatness of heaven is characterized, is characterized by its opposite, and that is the, um, uh, the depth of hell and the total separation that you have from uh, the ever the possibility of salvation. And the moment you step out of this mortal plane, you're done. You, don't, you, can't, you can't get to heaven and say, oh yeah, that's what that was about. Let me repent now. This is the time that God gives us. And you say, well, how can you be sure about that? Well, look at the Old Testament. How many times did God say that he withheld judgment on a group of people like the Canaanites or Sodom and Gomorrah or some of these other ones until their sin had been complete? There will come a day when our sin will be complete and God will no longer wish to deal with those individuals that choose to reject him. And when that day happens, the book is closed. You're done. And, and there's nothing more you can do because God is is the one that gives salvation. He's the one that justifies. He's the one that makes us righteous. Um, it's, it's our calling out for him, but we can't even call out for him without him giving us some indication. The fact that you're watching this today tells me that God has put you in the right place at the right time, and he's calling for you. And if you choose not to respond to him in a positive way, then your blood is on your own hands. The gospel message is clear. If you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And if you repent from your sins, that means turning away from your sins and receive the gift of the Spirit that is given to you um, and, and, and embrace Jesus as Lord, um, and then following with believer's baptism, you will be saved. Um, again, I'm saying that that following of baptism is an obedience thing. It's not a requirement for salvation. You say, well, pastor, how can you say that? Well, I just look at one of the most uh, famous converts ever, and that is the, um, the thief on the cross. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He offered him salvation because the man clearly repented and clearly acknowledged Jesus as Lord. Um, and knew that he was wrong. He said, we belong on this cross, but this man does not. You know, I mean, think about that. The fact that every single phrase or words that were spoken by anyone on the cross was, it took an incredible amount of, of force and willpower and pain to speak. And for this man to use some of those final words and use up his strength to say something, he, I mean, like that, I mean, this is what he chose to say. You know, he said, I belong on this cross. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. This man doesn't belong to me here. He is truly innocent. And then, of course, Jesus recognizes that and offers that salvation to him. And that man was never baptized. So um, I think that we need to not put God in a box and allow God to break free of any type of box or chain that we hold, try to hold him with and let him know that he is free to run through us, with us and for us. Um, and so that's the uh, that's the final bit that I have to offer you this morning, this afternoon. Um, so I definitely encourage you um, to continue reading in the book of Acts. And we're going to be in uh, Sunday, we're going to be in the third chapter. And we're going to be looking at another sermon from Peter. And, may, and next Wednesday, I hope to break that sermon down a little bit more to you as well. Uh, so all that being said, I appreciate you coming and spending time with us. Um, for another episode of the Armchair Theologian. Spend your time with God wisely this week.